welcome to Loose Cannon, the Civil Liberties Podcast. And today it's bioethics and health law with Sasha Callahan. And uh, Parnell, you know Sasha very well. Yes, Sasha and I go quite a way back when Sasha was actually studying bioethics and my then colleague introduced us. Um, Sasha is so many things. She's um, a health and technology bioethicist and a lawyer. Uh, She has a PhD in bioethics um, and she's a wonderful communicator. So she's really able to tease out the complex issues around biotech ethics and regulation. She's done lots of research in fields um, from from mental health and psychiatric um, institutions through to uh, women and their relationship with the doctors in who, who treat them in the obstetric process. And of course, lately, she and I have been talking a lot about the ethics of the lockdowns and the medical interventions around COVID-19. So really excited to talk to Sasha today and to let her talk to our audience about the the nuances that she sees in these areas. Thank you for having me. It's great that you're here. Um, So you do tweet quite a lot about um, issues around the restrictions that have been put in place uh, to, uh, to combat COVID. So tell me a bit about you. Actually, you know what? I'm going to read out. So you wrote, ultimately the decisions are about risk tolerance and balance. Those things are for the community to decide via the democratic process, not by experts or officials of any kind. In the end, the right response slash level of risk is a matter of opinion, depending on one's values. Setting a path where there is passionately divided opinion, even among experts, I expect emergency management experts would also end up falling into camps, actually requires political leadership. Far from being no time for politics, It is the time for politics. It's the biggest reckoning of social values right down to how much lifestyle is worth sacrificing to prevent death, what do we really mean by health, et cetera, in generations. And you also wrote, much has been revealed about the Australian character. Please discuss, Sasha, what has been revealed about the Australian character. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it... We have often liked to think of ourselves, and you still hear this idea repeated that we're sort of a larrikin nation of, you know, um, sort of anti-authoritarians. But I think the evidence across many generations um, and, you know, apart from a few uh, short blips every now and then where we have had, for example, um, you know, say Labor governments, I think think the Australian Australian population is is pretty conservative. Um, We, you know, there's a very, there's a very old um, Henry Lawson poem called Sweeney. um, And and in that poem, there's a there's a drunk in a bar, you know, in in colonial um, New South Wales in a, in a pub, and um, he's complaining about his life and how it turns out. And he says, "And I and I was damned if I could think of what the government was doing." 
And we are a nation of people who like to be governed. Um, we like to be governed. We like to be, we expect governments um, to look after us. Um, and, you know, we quite, we have high expectations of our fellow citizens um, that, that they'll fall, fall into line. And I think we've, we've seen that over the course of, of COVID. Um, you know, we also, I think we're, we're suspicious of artists, we're suspicious of tall poppies, um, where, you know, we can be uh, xenophobic. It's sort of all, it's, it's the other side of, of the Australian character, sort of the less attractive side in a way um, that has really come to the fore, I think, um, during this pandemic. And one thing that I think has been quite interesting, especially on Twitter, um, for what started off as quite a small crowd of people who were suspicious of increasing authoritarianism uh, or tendencies to authoritarianism um, that we were starting to see was it was this really strange coalition of, um, you know, green voters, artists, you know, trans people and sort of people who you'd normally think of as being quite a long way down the you know the political right all agreeing um, that all of this kind of citizens policing each other um, you know mass policing of people going going about their ordinary business was something to be worried about. So it was this interesting coalition of people who were probably un, unusual characters um, in their own ways, um, sort of saying, I, I, you know, I feel uncomfortable about this level of conformity being demanded. So I, I thought that was fascinating and, and that voice is only uh, growing, growing louder and I think we've seen that. I think we've seen you know, the public sentiment tip in favour of um, reducing um, the level of government control over our lives. It's been, it's been a while coming. I wonder if we've seen the, the measure of how much control Australians will take, though, Sasha, in this time, because I think you and I were both really shocked, and I know Jonathan was as well, really shocked when we saw that survey which showed that 60%, around 60% of Australians didn't want borders to reopen anytime soon. And that was around the end of last year. I think it was more than 70%. Oh, more than 70%. It was a huge number, huge. And, and we, were, we were very shocked because it showed us that there was a sort of a sense in the population, a whole set of the population who, who we didn't feel in alignment with. And... And yet I feel now that what's happened is Australians have changed their attitude and it's probably flipped the other way that now, you know, and I haven't seen any statistics around this, but now people are much more inclined to want to open up. Is it, I wonder, have we just sort of worked out the pace at which the Australian population moves through this, the, the arc of acceptance in, in a situation like this? Are you asking whether I think the pace has accelerated of our? Well, you know, no, I, I'm, I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, do Australians just have a different arc? So, um, the US obviously they are very very trigger happy, very sensitive to 
any um, any removal of liberty, and and their yeah. their first response is is to kick back against any sort of removal of those freedoms. Whereas Australians are more likely to to have a slower response to it and say, well, okay, we can cooperate for a while, but enough is enough at some point. And I don't know, maybe the UK sits somewhere in between the US and Australia on that and other countries could be mapped. I, I think part of the trouble is that we in this country don't have a great political tradition of talking about freedom as such. And, and, and sort of freedom discourses sound very American to Australian ears. And they're associated with all of those things like, you know, in, in the Australian mind with things like mass shootings, you know, and um, the excesses of Donald Trump. And, you know, most Australians regard those sorts of things with a, with a level of, of horror. So I think talk, talk of freedom um, is, is regarded with suspicion in this country and we don't have an established discourse here that's taken seriously sort of amongst centrist people um, where we're able to talk about freedom in a way that um, is taken seriously. We've really taken it for granted, in fact, in this country. Um, and perhaps I think for the first time um, we've encountered what it actually feels like to be deprived of freedom and it probably is the first time um, Australian-born people have or, or even people who say haven't got parents or grandparents who've kind of passed down stories of um, authoritarian type situations um, you know through I guess family folklore um, so we've got I think this is the first time many Australians will have experienced what it means um, to be prevented from doing the sort of normal everyday activities that that people do. And that that's new for us. And I think it probably has led many people who wouldn't have thought about it before to be thinking about concepts of of freedom for the first time. And by, by many people, I mean ordinary people who aren't especially politically engaged. Yeah. Sasha, I'm going to throw some uh, of my, the things that really make me mad and about the, about health bureaucracy and just bureaucracy in general. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So, yeah. um, so let me tell you, in the early stage of the 2020 lockdown, do you know what they did at beaches like Clovelly Beach? They they decided yeah, that to keep people 1.5 meters away from each other. Now, I don't know. They were going to, they were going to take some very serious steps. Now, now, and I don't know about you, but when you have a large open space, people do not normally come right up against each other and stand right next to each other. Like I would call the cops if someone behaved like that. Yeah. So, but in a big open space, there isn't like from my point of view to, to have social distancing, there isn't any intervention required. But they decided, the, the council, that they needed to act urgently, I guess on the basis of the state um, health orders or whatever. And what do you think they did? They put up 
fencing and barriers to channel people into one entry point into the water and one exit point from the beach. In other words, treating the open area as though it was a crowded airport. And so what was the effect? The effect was to force people closer together than they ever otherwise would have been, thus achieving the exact opposite of what they said they wanted. Now, have you, do you have a point of view on how public health slash public health bureaucracy has gone on in the last 18 months? Oh, look, I mean, Australia is not uh, the only country in the world who um, has a bureaucracy that often um, enacts policy in a clumsy and stupid way. Um, I think that is what bureaucracies the world over do. And, you know, there were many examples of that early on in the pandemic, and that will no doubt continue until the end of time um, here and everywhere else. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think there were a number of things going on. Um, I mean, it, it was a completely unprecedented situation. We didn't have a lot of information in those, those early days. Mm. Um, but so, so in terms of how to manage it, I mean, I think there was quite a bit of just flying by the seat of our pants. And even, so that's just at the level of policy setting. Uh, and the next question is, well, how are we going to police that? Like, should we even bother policing that? Um, or should we just say, well, that's, that's the idea and, you know, can you all please do that? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of politics going on and a lot of optics and trying to keep, um, trying to keep the population, I guess, on site. I mean, in, in many ways, I think th those were sort of failures of leadership in some ways because, you know, governments were just worried about, um, you know... Yeah, the bias, the, bias, the bias was to do something rather than... Sure nothing but um well, this is the thing. we often say pandemic theater in a in a disparaging way but actually sort of early on in the pandemic it was pretty much everything we had to make people feel a little bit more secure was the theater around this is how we're managing the pandemic while we know sweet fa about what's going to happen yeah yeah, but can I ask? Yeah, they were the only tools. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Can I ask about another one that makes me mad? This is more medical system stuff. So you're, you know, someone's wife is dying of cancer. Too bad they don't get to be with their dying wife because the rules are the rules. Um, it would be so bad if she got COVID. You know, in her I don't know last hours of life. Same applies if you're talking about you know the the 95 year old lady with dementia who doesn't understand why nobody's coming to see her in the home because. And just deteriorating from the isolation because, oh, no, no, it would be so terrible if, you know. And I think every thinking person knows the idea that there's no possible way that you could spend time together without risking COVID on everyone else nearby is, is nonsense. That if they spent five seconds on it, they would come up with a way. What do you think about that? Is that am I reasonable to be mad about all this kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think, you know, we could all agree that, that those examples are the great tragedies of the pandemic. I mean, you know, there were terrible 
really barely justifiable, frankly, if at all, decisions made, incredible inflexible application of the rules. Um, you know, again, that's what, what happens when you have bureaucracies, um, you know, implementing these decisions which are taken at a broad level. Um, in individual cases, you see incredible injustices happening um, all the time. Um, and, and that's really the price you pay for having uh, sort of policies which really interfere very strongly in the normal running of people's lives, in the normal humane interactions that we have with each other, being with loved ones when um, they're sick and dying, um, reuniting babies with their mothers, you know, that case of that three-year-old that was, um, that was, uh, had been on holidays with his grandparents yeah. in um, northwest New South Wales, far away from any population centre and was stuck there when the border closed um, and couldn't get back to his mum. Hadn't been anywhere near a population centre with COVID. Meanwhile, you know, exceptions were being made left, right and centre, you know, for other people. I mean, there are examples abound of, you know, unjustified violations of human rights. They, they happened all the time. Um, and so, so the sooner those restrictions um, go, you know, the better and safer we all are, if not strictly in a biomedical sense, um, certainly in a um, in terms of our, our human rights. Of course, of course, our health is part of our human rights, um, but but health is multifaceted. I mean, health is not just you know the biomedical state of having an absence of of disease. Health is psychosocial. Um, as well. Um, and so really what we've seen is, is a grappling with that fact. Is there something wrong with the way, I don't know, medical people are trained that they didn't see this or the, like is there something systemic we could draw, like some conclusion we could draw about, uh, draw uh, from what we've seen, the inflexibility we've seen? No, doctors are doctors and we want doctors to be doctors. And by the way, there are many different types of medical professionals in, involved here. So doctors do clinical medicine. They treat sick people. Um, epidemiologists, they're modellers basically, and they, they look at um, the way that infectious diseases spread and they, yeah. they calculate risks. And virologists look at the way that viruses um, work and infect people. Immunologists, um, you know, yeah. look at vaccination. So there's not there's not just one type yeah. of medical professional involved here. Do I think that there's something wrong um, with them and the jobs that they do? Um, no, I don't. Um, they're doing what they do, which is operate in their sort of area of expertise. But what I think we have hopefully learned is that, you know, doctors aren't expert, aren't experts on everything. You know, there wouldn't be a person among us who hasn't disobeyed doctor's orders from time to time, who hasn't decided for their own reasons that they're not going to take the medicine or they're not going to finish the medicine or they're not going to change their diet or they're not going to do this or that because medical advice needs to be taken in context. And picking and that's, up, yeah, yeah, 
Picking up on that, Sasha, do you think that there will be a long tail of sort of medicalism coming out of this? So, you know, now health experts have gotten used to us taking the advice on COVID. Are we going to see measures, harsher measures around other vice around vices such as eating too much or drinking too much or you know even the odd cigarette which is obviously something that already the health experts in Australia have been very effective at phasing out do you think that there is going to be a sense of empowerment in the health community to inverted commas solving other health issues could they not have any greater sense of entitlement and empowerment I mean, I think the the encroachment on health um, in terms of regulation of our lifestyles is substantial in Australia, probably more so than, you know, almost anywhere else in the world. Um, what I'm hoping to see, and, and, you know, really what I've noticed is more of a willingness to push back on that or at least to see it in, in perspective. You know, I think it's a very interesting and tricky balanced strike. There's a famous sociologist called Susan Hark, who I, who I love, and she talks about, you know, striking the right balance between uh, scepticism and, or no, sorry, cynicism and scientism. So cynicism is being so cynical about, you know, scientific advances and let's put medical science and health sciences in that you know bucket as well that you can't recognize you know actual facts uh, and the good that is done you know you certainly don't want to be so cynical as to for example not believe in the effectiveness of vaccines um, but scientism so and scientism isn't isn't new to this pandemic um, you Leaders look to it all the time to try to divert, um, to try to justify what are essentially political decisions. And that is where you look to science to say, look, this isn't, this isn't an evaluative decision. This is a decision based on facts because a scientist said, said so. But that's not what science does. Science cannot give you the answer about what should be done. They can give you information about, you know, the facts involved, but what should be done is a political decision. But we've done this, you know, we, we do this in many contexts all the time. You know, managers in a workplace, for example, will frequently say, look, what I want to do is restructure the business this way. Now, I don't want to go to the business and say, say that. Uh, because people are going to have to be sacked. So the better thing for me to do is hire some consultants, talk with the consultants about what I expect to find, um, have a report from consultants saying that in their expert opinion, this is what needs to happen, and then that's what, what we do. So the same thing happens with political leadership yeah, um, that's why they always have the health officer there and we're just taking the medical advice, just following medical yes, advice. But, but, but then you can use it the other way, you see. So when it's like, oh, what about the mental health impact? Now, really, it's like, sure, I mean, everyone hates this. What's that? What do you call that when everyone hates something and they're all really upset about it? Well, they call that a mental health impact. So let's get the mental health people 
um, out to, you know, and then, and then you can you have a battle of the experts and you choose which ones, you know, uh, are going to support your cause. But at the end of the day, ultimately, these things are always political decisions. And, and one objection I had to that article that, that you sent me, Jonathan, was, you know, that was a different type of expert. That was an emergency management. Uh, just to explain, said, just to explain, the guy was saying in that article, Ramesh Thakur, he was saying that it should have been emergency management experts, not, you know, health, health you know, not experts. epidemiologists. Yeah. yeah. But, but let me tell you, there is not an expert in the world who can, who can tell you the answer to what ought to be done. You know, we haven't had thousands of years of debate over what the right thing to do is um, because we could set up a ministry of good decisions um, and get the, um, the experts in good decision management to just tell us what all the good decisions are because life doesn't work like that. It's, it's, it's multifaceted and opinions will always differ. So the real ethical question is where opinions differ, and they will, whose opinion ought to carry the day? Um, and the way that we've sorted it out um, in democracies has been that it ought to be uh, the opinion of the majority, save for one important um, consideration, which is, you know, fundamental human rights probably ought, ought not to be subject to the popular vote. So if the majority of people said, for example, yes, I think we should, um, you know, kill all blue-eyed babies for some reason, apart from the fact that, you know, that's that's absurd, um, you know, that wouldn't be something that we'd, got, we'd want to go for. Or the, but but gen, generally speaking, um, within certain boundaries, a majority view um, will carry the day in a democratic system. So let's see what the population wants um, to do with COVID. And I'm personally seeing a shift. Can I ask you a question about the experts? Uh, because, of course, there has been, as you've said, an empowerment of experts in this scenario. And I'm wondering what the ethics of experts putting their discipline to the fore to the exclusion of all other considerations is. And in answering that, what I'm really interested in at the moment is actually the shift to mental health now, because we've been, for the last two years, we've been focused on, oh, well, we might die of this pandemic. And now all of a sudden, we might all die of the mental health caused by this pandemic. And I wonder about this sort of singular focus, which experts are encouraged to push by um, by the media cycle and and how you think that might be managed or is it is it just normal and we should allow that and 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 expect our policymakers to balance those those interest groups I would say I don't actually think um, that experts really have a lot of power per se in the end decisions are still made um, by elected, governments um, so that they you know that they have the same amount of power that they've always had in a way um, the thing is that they've had a platform like um, we've we haven't really seen before so we've got people who are essentially sort of you know research nerds um, that you know they all have their own 
frailties, they all have their own anxieties, they all have their own preferences and agendas. Um, often, you know, people who are researchers aren't especially good leaders. You know, they don't have training in a broad range of areas. They're only able uh, to give a, a very uh, narrow um, opinion in their area of expertise. But what has happened is that in so many uh, television, radio interviews, they get asked to venture an opinion beyond their area of expertise. And of course, you know, like most people with an ego, um, they're more than willing uh, to share it. Um, and then, you know, an idea has sort of taken hold or, you know, it's probably always been there that, oh, well, smart people with an opinion, um, that, that opinion, you know, ha has to be the right one. But the thing is, I believe that what we are slowly learning, what we've seen, what, what the general public is saying, that people, only people who previously um, worked in uh, biomedicine knew before, which is, you know, experts aren't all agreed. You know, experts have different opinions, different, um, different personalities. They fall into camps. There's a range of views even among experts. So it came as quite a shock, I think, uh, to the population to see, oh, you know, look at this. There's one group that are sort of hardcore zero COVID people um, that want to sort of maintain lockdowns and stringent um, public health and social measures to eradicate or suppress COVID as much as possible in the population. But look, there's another group of experts who don't hold that point of view and they think that it would be, you know, acceptable um, to, you know, have more freedom and well, all that would happen is that we have more um, COVID and, you know, yeah, sure, more deaths, um, but there's no reason why we can't do that or at least there's no scientific reason why we, why we shouldn't do that. So that was, that was a revelation to most Australians, and I include among that most pe people who are lay to medicine and medical sciences. So that includes journalists, um, politicians, uh, and the people listening to journalists and politicians. So that in some ways, I think, took some of the power from experts before we were flummoxed about, well, how do we counter the fact that, um, you know, Ozsage thinks that there's going to be, you know, 6,000 cases a week by the end of October or, you know, whatever the prognosis might have been or, and that as a result of that we need to, you know... Sorry, what's Ozsage? Ozsage. So Ozsage is a group of um, epidemiologists that are famously... Um, uh, risk averse and they've made a number of um, disastrous predictions uh, which haven't come to pass and the Burnett Institute which is the primary advisors to the Victorian government uh, are in that group as well so they tend to be much more risk averse and their modelling has shown largely because they they underestimated the effect of vaccination um, their, their modelling showed um, much more dire health outcomes than actually came to pass, particularly in New South Wales, for example. So I think a degree 
of not cynicism but scepticism has emerged, which is a healthy scepticism um, amongst, and I'm not talking, you know, about people who are, um, who are, you know, complete cynics and deny science. You know, that's a very dangerous phenomenon as well. But amongst centrist, sensible journalists and policymakers to actually apply a critical eye to expert opinion. And before, I don't think we had the language or the um, analytical tools to do that um, in mainstream journalism in this, this country or even in politics. And I think we're, I think we're getting those balls. What, what should I say to my friend who said to me, if people aren't vaccinated and they get sick from COVID, they should pay for the medical treatment themselves. Like my, my, my sort of in sort of lefty response is, well, we have a public health system. There are limits to what we should be, limits to the control we can put on people. We should just accept that we're going to pay for people to get sick, even if they make bad decisions, like when you get drunk and you break your arm. Is that a good, is that a good response? Or what, what should I be saying to someone who says, look, well, who aren't vaccinated, well, should be punished like that. I mean, these things have been raised frequently for, again, for, for generations, you know, should we offer health treatment for free to smokers? Um, what about fatsoes? What about, you know, um, people who don't take medicines properly? And we've decided that as a humane society in this country um, that we allow humans to be human. We allow humans um, to live uh, in accordance with their own values um, and to make decisions within law. In fact, when they, you know, donate lawfully and we don't administer health care um, on the basis of um, whether or not they comply with doctor's orders. Um, that's a moral decision that we've taken. Sure, you know, there, there might be other views out there that um, anyone who, who uh, doesn't live a healthy lifestyle um, doesn't deserve free medical treatment. Um, but I, I just can't imagine um, that, that point of view um, really succeeding uh, in the population as a whole. So sure, I'd say your friends are entitled to their view, but maybe they might want to think about, you know, um, whether they drink sugary drinks or, you know, whether they could lose a bit of weight or whether, you know, there's any number of things that, that contribute to their poor health outcomes um, and whether they might uh, also be denied uh, health care on that basis. That might let them to reflect a little bit. Yep. So, I mean, if there, so if there was one thing that I wanted to follow up a little bit, Sasha, it's um, about it was because of your work in the in the in the mental health space. Uh, it concerns me that we're going down this path of um, increasingly medicalizing mental health off the back of the pandemic. Um, so it's become the great mental health crisis, and I wonder whether there are consequences of that that could end in an ethically sort of ethically poor outcome. So either because people are 
are pushed into an identity that um, that then becomes theirs, that then makes them less healthy, or um, or because it ends in um, in being scheduled, which you've written about in in at, at length about um, the issues of scheduling and then releasing yourself from from that mandatory um, psychiatric care. Um, so you're asking me about medicalizing um, medicalizing the problems of normal life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I, I guess when I think about this sort of thing, I think, well, what are the the real impacts of this sort of thing? So, I mean, do I think that it's likely that people are going to be scheduled um, because they're suffering grief or something like that and it might be, you know, considered to be some kind of grief disorder? I, I, don't, I don't really think that's realistic um, for, for, for a number of reasons. But do I, do I think that um, philosophically it's a problem to medicalise human experiences? I mean, I'm just inclined to think that it, hel it helps some people to, to think about um, what they're experiencing um, in medical terms. Um, and there might be some pathology. I mean, ge generally speaking, um, people who tip over into a pathological type situation are experiencing something that's kind of different to, um, you know, like a lay person would recognise, okay, there's something sort of going wrong here. But, but for the rest of us, I mean, I think we listen to all of these opinions about, you know, how we're dealing with things at different times. Um, and if it just seems silly and it doesn't resonate, well, you kind of ignore it. Um, but if it if it's going to work for you, if it means you're going to, you know, have a counsellor that might help you through it, or you know, access to antidepressants, which actually really work work well for people in lots of circumstances, you know, I think it's I, I think it's I think it's not a problem. I mean. Maybe we encourage people to feel helpless sometimes. That might be what you're getting at and we're not encouraging people to be resilient. But these, in my view, are part of a conversation that we are having as a community about health and we will we'll continue to have it. Um, and, you know, these are very good points that are made about um, whether we help people more to um, pathologise their experiences or if we help people more to encourage resilience. And, you know, I think that actually it's impossible to say in any kind of blanket way we're all really different and some people will be helped more by a certain way of looking at themselves and, and others you know, not as much. So I think we have to treat people as individuals. Yep. So fascinating. Thanks for joining us on Loose Cannon. And I'll put uh, Sasha's Twitter uh, in the show notes if she's okay with it.
Um, yeah, that's and, uh, please do get in contact with us. The email address is loosecanonpod at gmail.com. This and also Parnell's Twitter is going to be in the show notes and we'd like to hear from people on guests to have on and things to talk about. See you next time. Thank you.